Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want What Fuels You to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories, the years, and successes. Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Greg Schwartz. Greg is the CEO and co-founder of Tomo, leading the company in its mission to make buying a home as enjoyable as living in one by providing an intuitive platform with empathic experts. Prior to Tomo, Greg was part of the executive leadership team at Zillow Group. As president of media and marketplace, he led sales, business strategy, product development, and customer service across the company's premier agent, real estate, rental, mortgage, and new construction marketplaces. Before joining Zillow, Greg was VP of Advertising Sales at CNN Money, served as the National Accounts Director for Yahoo's Automotive and Finance Properties, and held multiple positions at DoubleClick. Greg has been named by Inman News as one of the 100 most influential real estate leaders and was named to Swanpole Power 200. Currently, he is on the board of directors for Car Gurus and on the board of trustees for Hamilton College. When he's not in the office, you can find Greg tearing up the trails on his mountain bike or at the beach with his family. Welcome, Greg. So fun. Love seeing you. It's been too long. Great to be on with you. I know. Okay, I'm hitting you with some rapid fire. Are you ready? Yep. Okay, favorite U.S. president? Oh, Teddy Roosevelt. Nice. Quote that you live by? Own it. I like that. Um, If there was a book written about your life, what would it be called? He put his all into it. What is the biggest misconception about you? Is there a misconception about me? I don't know. I'm curious. (laughs) Um, I don't know. Uh, Hey, I guess the biggest misconception is that just because of a job, with a C in it, uh, you're not a real person. You're not approachable. Yeah, I can see that. Well, I'm glad that uh, we get to do this podcast because half of it, as I've told you, is is to, I guess, demystify that part because everybody is so approachable. And when you just get them talking about their life, we all have shit. We all have fears and insecurities and obstacles and successes um, and challenges. So I love that part of the podcast where we just get to know people. Um, yeah, I worked at a, bring I, it. I worked at a, uh, at one of the big major media companies earlier in my career in New York, and it was a suit and tie kind of culture. And uh, when, when a senior person, um, VP or whatever, walked down the hallway, people would stop talking. And I, and I remember thinking how odd uh, it was like uh, the trials and tribulations of a young internet uh, kid like me, how odd and unnecessary and arbitrary that was. Yeah. So uh, I try to fight that. Uh, whenever it occurs. I totally agree. Okay. What's your biggest fear? Uh, failure. 
I'm not surprised by that answer. Um, and I think I know the answer to this one too, but mountains or beach? Mountains. Yeah, because I know yeah. you had your, your pad and Whistler, big skier. Yeah, I close my eyes, I see mountains. Oh, that's your happy place? It is. Um, okay, if you were to buy an investment property right now, where would you buy it? Austin, Texas. It's blown up. It's yeah, insane. hey, is even it with rising, it's, and now it's never too late. Even with rising, you just got to follow population growth because um, real estate ultimately in the long term is about population growth. Um, even with constraint, with these high interest rates, uh, mortgage rates, um, and constrained supply, uh, Austin real estate uh, uh, average selling price went up last month um, when the rest of the country flattened out. So people still want to be there and they still want to buy a home. Okay, so Greg, we met in Seattle, and I just remember this because people, several people told me about your name because obviously we moved from New York to Seattle. And like, you got to meet Greg and Lisa. They're the coolest. They're from New York. But where did you grow up exactly? Tell me about your childhood. Okay, uh, back to mom and dad. I grew up in Montreal in, in Canada, and I grew up speaking Fringlish, mm -hmm. um, which is what Montrealers speak, half French, half English. Um, and I, I, I went, went, went to school there. I did not play hockey. I was the, I was the one. Um, I swam, so kind of pool related. And I went to school in the States because uh, uh, my future was always in New York City, the Big Apple. Um, closed my eyes and I saw that. Uh, and I went to a little school in upstate New York, Hamilton College. And the biggest challenge for me going from Montreal to uh, uh, an East Coast college was uh, I, I didn't speak English for a lot of words because I grew up speaking sentences half in French, half in English. And I thought in French in a bunch of things. It took me a little while to reframe that experience kind of as a, a unique and arbitrary thing. But um, who gave you the fun. exposure to even thinking about because, um, you know, some parents kind of guide their kids through um, the thought process around college and where to even think about looking like Hamilton's kind of not on the radar for someone in Montreal. Yeah, yeah, there was usually one of us a year or one of us every other year for Montreal. Um, hey, I, I'm on the baby in the family. I had two older sisters, so I kind of followed their path. Uh, my older sister um, went to Hamilton before me and, and swam there as well. So I, I kind of I had a path, but dad certainly pushed us that way. He pushed you that way. So yeah. where did your parents grow up? Uh, New York region. My dad was uh, grew up in Brooklyn in Bensonhurst uh, in a one-bedroom apartment, uh, which I got to go to as a kid, and my mom in, in Valley Stream, Long Island, so down the train tracks. Oh, interesting. So how come they took you to Montreal? Like, like, like what brought us together in Seattle? Opportunity. My dad was a young attorney. Had to make a living, and and uh, a Canadian company hired him, and and he spent his career there, which was a ton of fun. Yeah, and are you one of those people? I have actually had a few Canadians on the podcast, and have several friends who are Canadian. Do you are you like a card carrying like Canadian? Like I very much identify with being Canadian. No, I'm a card carrying Montreal Canadiens Habs hockey fan. Mm -hmm. Um, that I am for life. You can't take that off. But no, we're, we're we identify. We're Americans, uh, and proud of it. Yeah. And would you say that you identify as a New Yorker? You know, that's I, a that's a different that's a diff, difficult one. You know, Seattle got in Seattle got in my veins. Um, it's a pretty special place. We spent thirteen years, uh, 12, 13 years in Seattle. Um, so uh, I kind of think we're North Americans now. 
Yeah. Well, I heard you when you like weaved in, my dad grew up in a one bedroom. Um, I'm guessing that he kind of built himself, was like self-made yeah. um, attorney. And are you more like your mom? What characteristics do you share with yeah. <laughs> Isn't that an interesting question that would put me on the back in therapy? Uh, well, that's, that's what we're here for, Greg. Didn't I tell you that part? Is this called on the couch? It's called I on the it. couch. It's called what fuels you slash on the couch. <laughs> I love <laughs> it. Um, hey, I think we're all reflections of our childhood. We're all reflections of our, of our uh, little pieces of our parents. And hopefully we understand it and, and we can, we can harness, harness these things for good, like a superhero. Um, so that's me uh, coasting into the answer. My dad has an unbending work ethic and famously carries a yellow legal pad um, and makes lists of pros and cons, risks and rewards in all situations. Um, and that was my childhood was every word I said ended up on a, that, that was noteworthy, ended up on a yellow legal pad and a pro or a con. So I learned to communicate in a disciplined way or my dad was a litigator, or I was going to get litigated um, uh, at the dinner table every night. Mom, you know, was was a nester. She nurtured us. Um, uh, she taught us how to connect with others. Not that dad couldn't, but mom certainly did it better. Um, and, and I'm pretty grateful for both both those very unique people. Those are those are great qualities to have in your parents. And of course, we'll just stick with the uh, those positive qualities. I love how you're framing it because it's true as you get older that it is two ways you can kind of look at it and to just draw out like all the beauty that we've gotten from our parents and how those things have shaped us um, is a good way to look at it. And I love yes. the work ethic thing because I do think of you as being an extremely hard worker and anybody who knows you knows that about you. Um, curious when you were little, like what you valued, like, what were you about as far as like, Hey, this is what's important to me. When I was little, like, fifth, um, like fifth grade, how, what your friends, if I were like talking to John, more, and Steve, more like, cookies. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> My next meal. Like uh, you were a swimmer. So were, do you valued time competing, uh, in the pool or you valued, yeah. um, I know you were really into, um, government, uh, when did yeah. that come about? Yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm inherently a joiner. I like being part of things, teams, part of things that are bigger than myself. Um, uh, I, I, I like a mission. I like a big goal. Um, I'm not afraid to, um, throw everything into these goals to, to take on pain. Um, my early life was largely defined by swimming. Um, because I was swimming before and after school every day. And it was a strategy to keep me out of trouble. My parents figured, put a, put a kid in the pool four or five hours a day. There's not a lot of time left or a lot yeah. of energy left for anything else. Right. And so that was probably the definition. And in, in when you're compact like me, uh, proxy for short, um, but compact like me, um, you swim the butterfly. Uh, I was about to say, you backstroke, breaststroke, butterfly. No. You're butterfly. Uh, Lucky people. I swam the 200 butterfly um, and it kind of defined me because that's what you do when you're not six foot four and particularly talented, but you're willing to, to take the pain. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that, that's, that's probably stuck with me that, 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 and one other thing. And I, when I think about my childhood is bullies, um, not the biggest dude, but uh, always willing to defend my friends against bullies. And that's actually 
which meant I lost a bunch of fights. Um, <laughs> uh, but so be it. I, I had integrity. Uh, that's been a threat of my career, um, which we can dig into now or, or, or not at all. But um, the threat of my career is I look for opportunities um, where consumers are being taken advantage of. Which certainly at our last company, Zillow, we we, we felt like um, customers weren't being given the information to make great decisions. And I think we landed search and find uh, as we like to think about it at that company. And at, at Tomo now, my, my current startup um, with my co-founder, Carrie, um, what we're really trying to do is, is bring down the cost um, and the pain associated uh, with buying a home through, through the mortgage process. And again, bullies, no one walks in and says, I love my bank. Uh, I hear things from customers every day that compare their mortgage experience to going to the DMV and we can solve this for people. It doesn't have to be this way. That's a bully, that experience. So that that probably goes all the way to to childhood. I love that you're saying that you're the person who kind of stands up with integrity for things and that you've woven that through your career. I love that you're seeing that as a thread and that it, it helps you lead where some people just see like, okay, this is what I'm doing. Uh, with my business versus seeing the why and that you're doing it with such purpose because that does help um, bring meaning to the and and help you kind of find passion in what you're doing versus just like okay we're going to work we're making money there's an ROI on what we're doing it's it's super helpful and I can't wait to get into it we're going to get into it but first where I do want to hear a little bit more about um, Hamilton because when I was prepping for this and um, reading about you studying um, government. I'm, I was super curious. I was like, yes, Greg for president. Like what were no. you, <laughs> what were you thinking when you decided to pursue government as, um, as like a major, were you going to pursue that as a career? Yeah. Um, government, political science, writing long papers, um, thinking theoretically about, um, systems, uh, appeals to, to, to my brain chemistry, um, I'm pretty open about having both ADHD and dyslexia. And so um, the greatest fear of my life is having to memorize things. That was very difficult. So bio, uh, biology or chemistry, very, very difficult um, for someone that had a lot of trouble retaining information. But the conceptual, that that's, that's where I really excelled. Um, and so political science, government really appealed to me. Public policy really appealed to me being able to take complicated problems and think about the historical context for them, why why they why they're present, and then creatively thinking about how to solve those problems, that that really suits people with um, uh, with kind of learning differences and in, in learning approaches like I have. Uh, I can see how really big, complicated systems are wired, and how they can be rewired. Now, you just can't ask me. Um, for the name of everything um, associated with well, I was going to say, because I have, I have ADD also, um, probably like later in life diagnosed, um, which we can get into offline, because otherwise we could yeah. talk about that the rest of the hour. Um, but I can't really concentrate long enough on like reading and writing. Like that seems like the counterintuitive, what you're saying, like to write for a really long time, to sit and be still for that long is actually pretty hard for me. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting hey, that you're able to do that. We we each have a different interpretation. It's been the struggle of a career and a life. Yeah. Um, and uh, I I share this um with my teammates and friends and people on on things like this to to try to tell them if if they share it, it's okay. 
Um, I got treatment for it um, uh, with a terrific doctor in Seattle and, and really started to harness it. But even back in college, um, I learned uh, that I have to be creative and write and do long form things in the mornings because mm. uh, this brain muscle is overclocking a little bit. And by the evenings, I'm at, not at my best. So uh, traditionally, when do you do homework? Sitting in the library after dark, right? Doesn't work for people like me or you maybe. Um, but if I could get to those things intensity at 5.36 a.m., I'm in really, when I first wake up, I'm in really great shape. Oh, interesting. But later in the afternoon, it's about connecting with people. It's about leisure. It's about friends. It's about family. It's not about quantitative um, analysis or, or early writing for me. That's that's like such an aha moment. That's so brilliant. I'm like, it's so basic, yeah. but but also so brilliant. I love that. So yeah. I know that now you've gone back, you're on the board of Hamilton. Obviously you had a powerful experience there to commit your time because everybody's kind of wanting a little piece of it. Um, what advice would you give? You know, you've got um, your kids pursuing, I know your older daughter is a junior. What advice yeah. are you giving her as far as like how to assess this whole process and how to think about college choices and majors. And since you're hiring so many people at Tomo, you've hired so many people at Zillow, does college matter? Does, does uh, you know, major choice matter? What's your advice there? Yeah, you know what free advice is worth? Often the, the, the cost of the admission. So I'm really careful. Um, about what for, worked for me may not work for others, even on my own kid. Because hey, if I recommend something, she's probably going to do the opposite. I was going to say, yeah, she doesn't even. She probably won't listen to this because my yeah. kids don't listen. So let yeah. it rip because she will never. Yeah. Think. So for for her, I'll, I'll tell you this this process of discovery that we're doing, but I can broaden it back out. Is um, uh, we're taking her to visit small, medium, large schools, urban schools, suburban schools, and country schools, so she can start to pattern match first how does she want to spend three and a half or four years? See, I'm a proud dad. She'll get out in three and a half. Um, probably not. Um, how does she want to spend her time? Uh, where does she want to spend her time? And what does she want to study? And so we're asking those questions rather than trying to, to provide the answer because I know what what I provide isn't, isn't going to probably be the right thing. It was the right thing for me. Um, uh, and I'm just going to try to run her through a discipline process. Broadly college, hey, different strokes for different folks. Zuck, Gates, uh, a bunch of people have done just fine leaving leaving school early, particularly Harvard early. Um, it was imperative for me to mature. Um, I'm still working on the maturing part, but I needed those four years in school to learn how to, you know, what Hamilton really taught me, and it changed my life, is it expanded a, a kid from Montreal, it expanded um, my view. I got to meet people from all over the place with very different contexts. Um, I got to learn to communicate. Uh, you can't get out of Hamilton without critical thinking uh, and to be able to um, give a public speech, persuasively speak. Um, and many of my best friends um, today are from, from that period, like I'm sure yours uh, are. Uh, and that's why I'm involved and that's why I'm grateful to it. So my advice to, to folks is um, think, think really clearly about a liberal arts education versus professional education. Um, I get asked that question a lot, you know, Hamilton political science, it was a liberal arts education. I don't know too many folks that I hear from today that say the thing I learned in my business or advertising program in college changed my career. Um, uh, I haven't heard that very frequently and I, I haven't interviewed for it in the thousands of people I've been part of kind of hiring. Um, so yeah. 
yeah. I encourage well, folks to think about what they want. Skills. A lot of the soft skills are equally as important, if not more important, <laughs> right? Today's yeah. kids, it's like, hey, learn how to have a conversation. Like this, the things you're talking about, learn how to think critically, yeah. learn how to be curious, <laughs> like the basics that sometimes yeah. it's like, they're just being fed information. Learn how to take ownership. Um, learn how to take ownership and accountability. Risk. Yeah. Absolutely. So what was the career path right out of school? And I'm guessing it, obviously it wasn't government. Yeah. Um, what was the career path? You've worked yeah. at incredible companies. I, I'm preparing. I'm like double click Yahoo, CNN money. I'm like, you name it. Yeah, um, luck, luck, luck of timing, luck of timing in, in a little bit of street smarts in a commercial sense is, is kind of what, what, what got me there. Uh, I got out of college. The only thing I knew is I didn't want to be a lawyer, which is what most political science government majors go and do. They become lawyers. And your dad, so of course. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to do what my dad did. And I didn't want to, I don't really particularly like rules. Um, so I, I, did, I didn't want to be in, in, in the business of just observing, implementing, embedding rules. Um, and I didn't want to be a banker, an investment banker. Um, like both my sisters became, because um, because again it, it seemed like a tried and true process. So I ended up in the ad business for no particular reason other than I'd seen it on TV. It looked interesting, and and to my to my great luck, uh, uh, a guy at the next desk, a guy named Ari, um, was working on the second ad campaign on AOL, America Online, um, the early online service, and he was buying some little banner things um, for a mutual fund client uh, at the ad agency. And I got exposed to to online advertising and and kind of fell in love, and it probably launched my career um, forward. Uh, you know, a decade or two. I remember this particularly persuasive moment. I was um, at an ad agency called called DDB Needham at the time, one of the big agencies, and this kind of famous publisher, magazine publisher, guy named a famous guy at Time Time Magazine. Like, could you think of a more powerful thing? Uh, this guy named uh, Ed McCarrick. Um, I haven't seen him since, I think. But this iconic publisher wearing a suit, Savile Row, you know, British suit that probably was cost more than my entire salary at the agency, um, uh, came on in and he was asking my opinion on the internet. Um, and I think I was a media planner at the agency at the time. And, and I couldn't believe that this iconic executive wanted to know what little old me um, uh, uh, thought. And I realized I had to trade on that fact because that wouldn't last long. Uh, and so that's what launched my career into getting out of the ad business and repping other companies to going and in, in, in working on a bunch of these startups and, and double click um, uh, a great company, a definitive company was was my first. Double click when I worked in Europe was a client of mine. I mean, what a I cool company. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool company. Tell me about these companies like as far as when you look back, we all have, I mean, now we're both, you know, have had a little bit of a career. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Um, which of these companies between DoubleClick, Yahoo, CNN Money, uh, let's not get into Zillow yet because that was such a long period, was, um, I guess, offered you the most personal and professional growth. And, yeah, I, and then separately, yeah. which of those companies would you, are you taking little nuggets from the most when you think about the culture you're creating at Tomo? Yeah, yeah, a bunch of them. Hey, hey, I had the luck. Um, I was always looking for answers. And I was always convinced earlier in my career that someone must have a book. <laughs> and the book must have all the answers. This is going to make you laugh to career pathing, how you, how you move forward, um, how you have a productive and successful career into business. 
and I was convinced someone was keeping these secrets from me. Um, and and uh, it was disappointing to find out that there there's not there's not some secret path to follow in these careers. Um, but I was lucky enough to to meet some mentors. And at DoubleClick, I, I worked for someone that's still a friend and involved in, in this company, Tomo, um, on our board today, Wendy Millard, um, who's one of the earliest and most prominent um, women media executives and just a world-class executive. And uh, I don't know how old I was, maybe 25, 26. I started working for her in her org at at DoubleClick, um, which was you know the, really one of the definitive uh, display advertising companies that Google ultimately bought that became Google's display business. And when it taught me the principles of selling um, and marketing, uh, and that made my career. And I subsequently worked for her three more times, two more times, two more times. Um, and she's on the board of this thing now. Um, so so finding a mentor um, and the right mentor was was pretty fundamental. Yeah. And tell me about that mentor experience. Was that, um, cause I always refer to this woman in New York who actually was texting earlier today. I always say, well, Terry's my mentor, but we never had a formal conversation about it. It was never like, Hey, will you be, I've heard conversations that other people have had. Will you be my mentor or where it's a formal thing. It was just that she recognized talent in you. You recognized talent in her. And you were like, I'm not, I'm no dummy. I'm going to like get more of that. And she was like, I'm no dummy. I'm going to get more of that. Like it just kind of organically and authentically happened. Right. Or did you guys have a conversation? Yeah. Hey, I, you know, that nowadays I would probably have a conversation like that and I would be, or, or folks would be better for it back then. I didn't have the emotional, I think, range or EQ to have a conversation like that. I was there to um, take any assignments given to me, you know, chase them down, do the mm. best work I possibly could and say, thank you, may I have another? Mm-hmm. Um, and that just ended up, you know, starting at, at, at DoubleClick, going to Ziff Davis, then eventually Yahoo together. Ziff Davis was another client of mine, by the way. That's so oh, wow. crazy. We and probably we didn't, overlapped. And we didn't we, know each other. We were probably in the same hallways. We probably yeah. bumped into each other and got a yeah. coffee. We, we should uh, have. Yeah, no, Wenda, uh, Wenda had stringent standards uh, and... Uh, a way of doing business, which she shared to many of us. There were, there, there were a whole bunch of, she had a massive amount of impact on a lot of us uh, in the New York internet community. Uh, and uh, as long as you kept your head down and did your assignments, you kept on going because she was a mm-hmm. rocket ship. Were and people was, scared of her? Sure, you should be. Yeah. Uh, you know, my favorite, my favorite line, I can still hear this in my head. Every time I write a memo or a board memo, I still hear her in my head, Greg, it's harder to say less than more. How about you try that? And I got that line once and only once. And uh, it, it taught me the, the value of brevity in business writing. Uh, there's a whole fistful of those from, from Wendell. One of my other favorite Wendell-isms is, you know, DoubleClick was, you know, was working with publishers, the big publishers at the time, the big agencies. So one of her favorite things is we'd go to a big industry event and she would teach, she would go to effectively the center door where everyone was walking in and she'd stand at the door, turn around and shake everybody's hands as if she was the chair or running the event. And everyone would think she was running the event. And so forever after I've done that for years and years and years, I go to events and I stand at the front door and just shake people's hands and say, hey, I'm Greg, welcome to the event. Hey, I'm Greg, the CEO of Tomo, <laughs> welcome to the event. I'm so thrilled to get to know you. And people would be like, 
you know, hand you their business card or whatever it may be, give you a hug, give you a high five. That takes and you a lot of chutzpah. Event. That takes a lot of chutzpah. I yeah. love that. Yeah. I love that. That's amazing. Yeah. Is there a company that you would, I guess, um, recommend the most or is it just her that you would recommend the most? Like if she um, hadn't been there, where, where would you be like, without her, I would just work at this company for sure. Yeah, companies are temporal. Because companies are about the people. They're really not about the machine, at least in what we do. They're not about the machinery or the factory. I don't make cars, right? Um, I'm not in in the research business, in the medical pharma research business, like some of our friends. We don't have any patents of, of no, like, like you do in pharma. Um, we have some patents in technology, though. Uh, so it's about the people, ultimately. Associating yourself with growth-oriented uh, ethical folks who are trying to go to the same place you're going with a reasonable, reasonably similar balance and latching on and getting on. You know, I went years, I don't think I ever asked Wenda for a raise in the 10 or 15 years I worked with her. When I was doing good work, I got more. And when I wasn't doing good work, I got kicked metaphorically. And that worked for me. And I'd say that's the thing to do. I'm sure Google's an excellent place to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, I'm sure Goldman Sachs is an excellent place to work. Tomo, in this case, my company, is a really interesting place to work for the right people, for entrepreneurial folks. But when there's a different you know, generation of folks there, it'll need different people. Yeah. Have the two of you ever had a conversation around your working relationship and what it's meant in reflection? <sighs> Not really. Not really. Um, uh, that would be something that would be, that would probably be embarrassing. Well, um, hopefully, maybe she'll listen. Who knows? Yeah. But I think it's important. Like life is so yeah. short. Like for her to just yeah. know what she's meant to you, and I'm sure you've meant obviously a lot to her. I'm sure she gets asked to be on a lot of boards. Yep. Um, I mean, I'm sure she sounds like a baller. Now I'm going to look her yeah. up when we hang out. You should. You should. Um, yeah. And, hey. It, yeah. She's hey, giving so you in- her time. Our, our CTO <laughs> said this to me, our CTO at this company said this to me the other day, we're talking about a particular issue and had the potential to have impact on people, <laughs> on pe- reflagging careers and the like. And, and I said, you know, I do care about them as individuals. Um, as a CEO or as a corporate leader, sometimes you have to make tough decisions about titles and roles and compensation. But Dan said, and I asked Dan if he felt the same way. Um, that part of our assignment is to help people grow and have a good journey, no matter where it goes. And, and Dan shared um, that there's just a bunch of rocks in the in the universe. <laughs> uh, it was a little lonely statement, uh, but you know the people you walk their journey with and the people that you have impact on is is ultimately the only the only lasting thing, right? We all know that. Um, so the impact, hopefully, hopefully, have helped a few careers along. Um, they certainly cared for a bunch of folks and, and a bunch of folks had impact on me. Um, oh, and if you stay true to that, uh, it can be a lot of fun. We've got a, a great friend in common, Spencer Raskoff, who's a kind of renowned CEO, um, who was just hanging out with, um, in Southern California the other day. And, and he's another guy that was a peer and, and a boss sometimes. And, uh, he taught me a whole bunch and hopefully I taught him a few things and, and I couldn't be happier for his success. Yes. And that's what you want your relationships to be like. Yes. Tell me about Zillow. How did you end up at Zillow and who brought you into Zillow and who brought you out to Seattle? 
Yeah, yeah. So I was in New York City working at CNN uh, on the digital on the digital businesses, uh, having a blast, but yearning for something more um, and yearning for purpose. The business was very successful and was lucrative, um, uh, but I, but I but I wanted to I wanted to do more than be a salesman. And I was running a sales force there, and I think at, at the time it's it's different now. New York was a place of sale salespeople and marketers. It wasn't a place where the big dreamers and the big products were built, certainly in technology. And so I wanted to get out to the West Coast at a certain point and be part of a West Coast product culture. Again, you don't have to be that anymore. There's stuff on the East Coast now and all over the place. But at the time, you know, either San Francisco or Seattle, that's where you dream big dreams. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to learn that. So the, the Zillow fellas um, had started Zillow and had had unexpected success quickly. Um, you know, that's, I think it was the second week Zillow was live and, and, and their Zestimate was live. Katie Couric, who some of you will have heard of, Katie Couric the, on the Today Show, the NBC Today Show, the host, spoke of, uh, talked about Zillow and the Zestimate. Again, it might have been a third or the fourth day. And Zillow saw some, I don't know, four or five million unique visitors in its first few weeks. And that was the first year's goal. Uh, and at that, they had the sort of a business and they need someone to figure out how to monetize it. And that's what I did. So the Zillow folks tracked me down actually through Wenda. Uh, they tried to hire Wenda first and Wenda said, no, nah, not my jam. Talk to, talk, talk to my pal, Greg. Um, and I also declined it. Uh, uh, they wanted me to take a 70% pay cut, move my family cross country uh, uh, and work on a, a lightly funded startup. Uh, and at first that didn't seem like a reasonable thing to do. And I believe I'm superstitious, Shauna. I believe in signs. It's a little weird, but um I, I just declined the job and I was kind of torn up over it. I'd flown out to meet them and fell in love with it, but it just didn't make sense financially. I wasn't in a position where I felt like I should, I should take a chance, which is kind of silly. And um, the next week, um, you know, I was in a division that had CNN money, also had Fortune magazine. Lo and behold, I see the advanced copy of Fortune magazine and what's on the cover of Fortune magazine, Zillow. Oh my God. Well, the magazine in my business group. Like, ding, 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 ding. So I had a little sign there. And so I called him back up and said, okay, let's interview seriously. And, and uh, I was there for 13 years, moved my family to Seattle, had a kid out there and learned many of the most important lessons of, of my life um, from the squad there, um, a really talented mm -hmm. group of people. What are, some of, what are some of those key lessons? Hey, uh, from these guys, Rich and Lloyd, uh, who are the two co-founders, and from Spencer, um, who was the CEO later, um, uh, unlimited opportunity. Um, you're not normally given permission to think that you can build transformative things. Who gives you the right to do that? And I asked um, one of the one of the co-founders, Rich, um, that how do you because he'd founded uh, Expedia before? How does this happen? How do how do entrepreneurs found multiple transformative multi-billion dollar businesses mm -hmm. um and in the next of what he shared was some people believe they can not that they can't and it gives themselves permission to act differently he basically said that and that was the most important thing i learned there is you can transform an industry if you believe you can if you can get the capital it helps um, if you keep your eye compulsively on first principles, on in this case, on the consumer, on the customer needs, um, and then you avoid uh, distraction and complexity, you can be incredibly successful. Uh, 
Uh, and then you have to be lucky, really, really lucky. A little lucky, yeah. And, and so- It doesn't hurt, yeah, in the old days, it didn't hurt to be a white guy in tech on the, on the, on the West Coast. Now I hope things are a little bit, are a little bit different with, with opportunity a little bit more, more even. I think that they're starting to change and Zillow uh, specifically, I know Zillow is like a whole, you know, Zillow group versus Zillow. Zillow's changed a lot, but they've been on the cutting edge as far as thinking through their diversity and inclusion strategy and having a whole team around it. And they've they've really been pioneering that in the tech community here, Um, which is, I think they've done a great job. Um, What do you think makes Seattle unique? as far as just a special place that left a mark on you and your family, but also unique as far as why so many unicorns come out of this place and why it's a unique place to build a real estate tech company. Yeah, isn't Seattle one of the most interesting places, the mix of natural beauty uh, with just such bright people, Um, such such bright, interesting people. Um, ultimately, it's about the talent there uh, in Seattle, not just in mountain ranges. Um, and maybe the rain has something to do with it, or the fogginess has something to do with it. It focuses people on their work. Um, right. You're like, what else are we going to do? It's fucking half the year. <laughs> yeah, half the year, it's it's dour. So um, let's do it. And the other half, it's truly, truly fantastic. Um, hey, ecosystems um, reinforce themselves. Um Boeing led to Microsoft, Microsoft led to, well, so many companies, um, Expedia uh, among them, Expedia threw off a whole bevy of companies, um, and and then those things continue down. So when you develop a, a depth, like, hey, we do most of our product development at, at Tomo today, uh, the product development team is headquartered out of Seattle. I kind of wouldn't dream of hiring product development folks that weren't in Seattle. There are other camps. Austin's got a good community. Certainly there's some talent in San Francisco. There's talent everywhere. But in a traditional model, you get folks that build uh, a capability of practice, like product development, and then it attracts more people that are interested in that. And they learn from each other. And then they start companies based on those skills. And hey, why is there such cloud talent, cloud commuting talent in Seattle? Why is there so much e-com talent, not just from Amazon, but think about all the retailers and e-com there, why Nordstrom's, Costco, uh, Eddie Bauer, you keep on going, right? There, mm-hmm. There's so much depth of talent in that particular area. Why are there so many prop tech real estate startups? Redfin, Zillow, Tomo. Um, there's a bunch of others that I'm probably insulting and not and not sharing um, because you get people interested in that topic and uh, uh, one begets the next. Yeah. And so we think lots about ecosystems uh, and that drove it. I think. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, you were there a little over 13 years, right? You had so many different roles, sales, president, president of media and marketplace. I mean, there's been so many iterations and growth and different things that Zillow has covered. Um, Zillow is like the name when you think of all things real estate. It's just kind of been this mega, mega company. It's just been nuts what they've been able to build. And so I'm sure it was a little scary to leave, right? Were you scared or was there like, how long were you kind of thinking about it and to leave in the pandemic, right? Yeah, you know, I left right before the pandemic, admittedly, Uh, right before it. uh, uh, Hey, the thing about Zillow for not just for me, for many of my teammates was it was very personal. It was ours. And that's a really important 
notion of success in startups in in companies is when when it becomes personal, people will do a lot more for it and treat it in a different way. And so it wasn't mine. It wasn't the founders. Um, it, it, it wasn't any, it was not my friend, Amy Botinsky, who I know, you know, well, Amy's company or, or CEO, CMO, uh, it was all of ours. And that really drove it. And there was a certain point where I was tired of having the same conversations with the same people and the same arguments with the same people year after year, 13 years in. And there was a time when there were other people who were better suited to doing the thing I was doing. And I've never driven a career via fear. And if you're a little bit fearless, so less fear, not no fear, if you're a little fearless, then you can look at yourself and say, you know what? My time's come. It's time for someone else to grab the reins on this thing. Let's see if they can do better than I can. Hopefully you're a, you're a gracious person and you actually wish them the best. Um, now the team after me grew the company tremendously. Um, we did pretty well with it. Uh, they've added a whole lot of income. Uh, to the company since my day. Uh, so they've proven that they can manage what was next. Um, uh, but it wasn't fun for me any longer. And hey, we've had uh, the graciousness of our careers during this time of abundance is there's always been a job around the corner yeah. one way or the other, if yeah. you're willing to go in and work for it. And so if you're not having fun, um, if you're not achieving your goals, whether it be monetary goals, safety, money, growth, curiosity, team, people, whatever it is that you're driven by, then go find the next thing. And that was time for me. Well, I remember when speaking thing. to you around that time and you're and, and talking to you and you were like, hey, yeah, I'm gonna I, I do remember actually it was before the pandemic. And you were like, yeah, I'm gonna take a sabbatical, I'm gonna take some time. Mm. And I'm like, and then it was like, poof. And then all of a sudden it was like, yeah, I'm starting a company. It was like Tomo. And then it wasn't just like, oh yeah, I'm starting a company. It was <laughs> like, I, I, I raised a shit ton of money. I mean, you, you just like go big or go home, like Greg style. This guy's like, this yeah. guy's not, this guy's here to play. Like what but is we're not messing around. that? This guy's not here to mess around. So hey, the assignment- the company in 2020 during a pandemic. Yeah. Um, I want to hear about that. What what was the original idea? I know you started it with your co-founder, Carrie. Did you guys just say, hey, we want to start a company together? Or did you have an idea and then you went to go find somebody to go start that idea with? Like what came in what order? Yeah, isn't it isn't it odd how things how things come together? Um, we were both leaving Zillow at the same time. There's a whole kind of generation of folks leaving, which happens at companies. Um, companies do different things and people need different things. And we started, Carrie and I started, Carrie's the best operator I've I've ever worked with. Um, I'm a bit conceptual, um, which is kind. Um, I'm a bit conceptual in, in, in maybe um, pretty high EQ. Uh, Carrie's pretty high IQ, um, which isn't a bad thing to be in, in just a terrific operator. Um, we sort of hang out in this coffee shop. Um, I wish I remember the name. Capitol Hill. It's all about bikes. It's a bike oh, coffee I know shop. Which one you're talking about? It's right um, on 10th, and I know exactly what you're talking about. Precisely. It's this really cool uh, bike coffee shop. Yes, it's right around I the corner from where we used to record. Um, exactly. Oh God. Okay. Exactly. It's right off Madison Street there. Yes. And I think it was at a time they weren't selling a lot of bikes. Maybe they, they didn't put the heat on very much in there. But we we're in the in the winter, inner puffies, shivering just talking about what really bugged us that we wanted to fix. And I'd like to say it was more than that. My original idea, which Carrie points out frequently, um, was pretty crappy, was I wanted to, I'm really into music. 
and I wanted to restart fan clubs, like fan clubs from the 1980s where you'd you'd buy into a, a band's fan club and you know be part of something. I, that that didn't last the test of time, and we kept coming back to housing. Um, we kept coming back to the to the incomplete business. You know, uh, at Zillow, I, I really think about we fix search and find how you search and find a home. But the real estate transaction is not much different than it was 35 years ago. You can use a digital signature, maybe DocuSign, Bravo. It's actually a pretty good innovation, but it hasn't taken the pain or the time or the expense out of the real estate transaction process. People always tell me they feel like they got a second job when they're buying a house. They feel like they're out of control. They feel pain and sometimes they feel shame. Those are very powerful human emotions. And if you could address powerful human emotions in a business and a product like that, you can build something that's very valuable. And what we don't lack for is ambition. Our intention is uh, to build a multi-generational brand and company that we're proud and our teammates are proud of, um, that does good, um, that makes the, the home buying process much faster by giving control to folks, to home buyers, and much less expensive. Uh, and if we can do that, we can build something of great value. We've chosen to start with uh, becoming a digital mortgage company. And ultimately our mission is to do what is done in 30 or 40 days. That's getting approved for a mortgage to do it in 30 or 40 seconds. Um, so and we're well exactly on the path. How that works. And what's the business model? Yeah. The business model is like, is, pretend I'm buying a house today. I'm like, Hey, yeah. Greg, it's me. How do I use Tomo? I'm buying my investment property in Austin. Yeah, yeah, would love to help you do that, by the way. Um, so we do a lot of that in Austin. So let's just pretend. Here uh, we are, I'm on the phone with hey, you. Hey, either doing? you found us in Google on, or your real estate agent recommended us, or you saw some editorial and it mentioned Tomo, a mortgage company. You went to um, hellotomo.com. Isn't that a cute URL? Hellotomo.com. Okay. Um, and uh, we're a bank. Uh, we're, we're a non-depository bank, which means we're the mortgage company. In four or five minutes, you've connected your accounts. You told us who you are, where you work. You've connected your accounts. You didn't have to upload any statements, no paper at all. You didn't have to take photos. You didn't have to have that big Manila folder of your entire life, all your pay stubs. You just connected your accounts to us dynamically. We have the use is just for this one use. Um, and within four or five minutes, we were able to tell you how much we could pre-approve you for. And in a few short weeks, we'll actually pass that through an underwriting model so you can go out and search for homes and make offers with basically a certificate it's pdf but a certificate from tomo that says i'm pre-approved to spend up to seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars to buy a home and i've been underwritten so as long as this home appraises i'm good to go i can make offers with great confidence so what and information then, is in there what am i putting in yeah hey it's it's the standard stuff so you're telling us where you work. Um, that's in a form. You're telling us, uh, actually, we're telling you, once we know your name, you're giving us your social, got to have that, sorry. Um, people people are comfortable with it nowadays. Then the first thing you're seeing is we're giving you a screen that tells you what we think. If you own a house, we're not asking you to plug in the address. We're telling you what, what you think, what we think you own. And we're giving you your, your what you call your REO, your housing resume. And we're telling you what, what we think it's worth. And we're asking you to correct that information. Mm. then um, you're connecting your uh, checking account to us and you're telling us where you work and we're automatically calculating your income and having you approve it. You don't have to give us your pay stubs. Um, then you may connect a brokerage account or two 
And then we're displaying for you what we calculate your assets are, your qualified assets are, and you're hitting a button to say, yep, that's accurate. And in four or five minutes, you can move through our screen and have a full financial re resume built of your credit, your income, your assets, your employment, and your current housing. You can have it generated for you by, by, by connecting to logging into a few services. You get it submit. And as the little hourglass is turning, we're running it through a real underwriting system. And we're telling you what uh, we believe we can, we can approve you for, what you're qualified for. That's amazing. For. And so what's it's the business amazing. model? How do you make money? Yeah, we make money like like a like a lender does, like a bank or a lender does. Um, we underwrite and fund the mortgage for you when it's time to go, and then we go ahead and uh, we sell that mortgage uh, to a typically uh, a big bank, or soon, not yet, but soon to like Freddie or Fannie, and it gets uh, uh, sold into a bond, um, and we get paid um, when we do that when we do that mortgage. It's kind of a complicated explanation. But, uh, no, but that, uh, we, that makes sense. That makes sense. I think yeah. the transparency is helpful. Just understand how it all works. Um, and you've raised how much so far? We've raised $110 million of venture capital. The market's been gracious to us. $70 million basically in our seed round, which was uh, embarrassingly the large, largest seed round in US history. Um, yeah, I remember reading that and including from Zola's founder, right? Yeah, yeah, including from Spencer Raskoff, one yeah. of the Zillow founders, uh, uh, and was our CEO, and a lot of other great investors and friends, and a bunch of the Seattle community, um, uh, great investors like Dan Levitan. I hope it's okay yeah. that I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning his name. Uh, uh, Ted Ackerley. Oh, yeah. Dan was on. Dan was on the podcast. He's yeah. amazing. Terrific I mean, supporters. Yeah, yeah, a bunch of great Seattle and in, in national and global investors got into it because. They see the big, massive opportunity to solve housing. And even in this housing reset, because there's a bit of a reset, there's a big, massive trillion dollar plus opportunity for us. Yeah. And so are there other people attempting to do this? Of course. Tell me who they are and what, what sets you apart. Yeah. Uh, it's hard. You know, that's an interesting question. The all competitive question. Um, Rocket Mortgage, the largest uh, mortgage company in the land led by some really tough, really bright folks in Detroit. Um, uh, Jay Forner, the, the CEO, is, is a guy I know and respect. Um, we do a different thing than they do. Um, we don't do refis. We've never done a refi. We just do purchase mortgages. We love partnering with real estate agents or doing them directly with customers. And that's our one thing. We, we think we're the, we're the, we're the best um, at, at doing purchase mortgages. Um, and, uh, and they're hard. And they're less profitable, mm -hmm. but it's a massive, stable business. Um, again, it's not, go yeah, it's not around, going anywhere. And so who are you selling into? Are you selling into like your employees? I know you're hiring and you're growing. I'd love to know yeah. what types of people you're um, yeah. looking at in case anybody's listening and looking for a job or knows somebody that could be good for you. But if you're, if you're hiring people that are trying to help you build the business, are they selling into real estate brokers to try to Both. create partnerships? Yeah. Yeah, the, there's a team. There's a team of of business development folks that work with real estate agents, and and uh, it's a very regulated category. So they're very carefully advocating for what we can do for home buyers, um, uh, and educating. And then there's a whole team of salespeople, loan officers, and SDR sales sales development representatives who work with actual consumers um, uh, to go ahead and, and and help advise them and get them into the right loan product. Uh, and that's a full-time gig. There's about 125 of us today. Um, we're hiring again. Um, we've got our feet under us. Um, 
you know, we, we we kind of took a step back, wanted to see where the housing market was going to be, and it's it's to a degree stabilized uh, to the degree that we're back to back to growing. Marketers, um, uh, software engineers, product folks, loan officers, um, uh, sales development reps, SDRs, you know, the full gamut. Yeah. And you mentioned your mentor slash friend that as far as um, yeah. one of your board members. Um, tell me about working with a board. I know that you've obviously had held leadership positions a little bit different, having your feet to the fire as a CEO. Um, how do you look at the role of the board and your role as a CEO as it relates to your board? Like, yeah, what makes a good board? Yeah, what, what makes a good board is is an interesting thing. It's a magic thing. It's a thing of art, not science. I'm also on a public company board, uh, largest used car marketplace, Car Gurus, in Boston. And I'm on some you know you know non nonprofit stuff. So I've I've got a perch and an opinion. Um, board members aren't there to, to to run the company. They're there to hold the leadership team accountable to a strategic plan and to ethical ethical operations. And so great board members probe and question and advise in a, in a pretty interest, sometimes in a soothing way, sometimes in, in an on the couch way. I've got certain board members that take me on the couch from time to time. Um, and then others that, that poke and prod and try to try to make sure that, that you're opening your, your eyes wide enough. Mm-hmm. Um, what great board members do is uh, they start to pattern match better than the management within a company can. We're so focused every day on our business, our customers, our partners, our vendors, whatever it may be, our community, that we often don't have the time to see what's happening at 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 companies intimately and, and venture capitalists, you know, we've, we've got a few investors on, on the board have that pattern matching ability. Um, and that's really, really handy. Mm. That makes sense. And also, and also hopefully handy, if they've got industry knowledge and networks that they can help with introductions or partnerships or anything like that. And also, do you you think of it as far as when you're putting together a board or you're thinking of a board? um, I've had CEOs say, you know, I want them to be by my side through the good times and the bad and that they're kind of have that ride or die mentality, not just, or that we're we're like-minded around creating solid company, not just thinking about growth, 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 growth at the expense of building a solid business. Um, Just all those different ways of thinking about it. And then separately, I've had CEOs talk about like gaps in their board. Like, hey, I don't really have somebody who's really good at thinking about culture. I need somebody who's good at that. Yep, yep, yep. From time to time, you need specific board members who have specific areas of expertise to push and prod. And that can be really, really handy. I think of an iconic board member. There's, there, there is, you know, on the Zillow board, um, there's an iconic board member, a guy named Bill Gurley, who's now famous, yes. a little, little, a little famous from Infamous, from the Uber, yeah. Yeah, Uber TV show. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the most effective board members I've ever I've ever encountered um, taught me, and I think my peers at Zillow more about product uh, in marketing than than anyone I've ever met, um, and wasn't always gentle or genteel about it. Um, pushed and prod, but did it from a place of commitment. Uh, and I'll take any input from a board member or anyone else if it's coming from a place of commitment to our success. Um, that's really that's really really cool. Um, and so I think I think when I'm on a board, when I look at my board members or when I'm on a board myself, I kind of visualize, believe it or not, 
bill uh, as, as as somewhat of an iconic example. Um, uh, only open your mouth in a board meeting, not to speak or not to hear yourself speak, but when you think you can contribute something or when you hear something wrong um, being done or being being thought, you have to take action. Um, but uh, uh, that, that that's probably the commonality to it. Yeah, you wanna be aligned on goals, um, but I don't, I, I very rarely seen board members misaligned on goals if they were investing in the relationships, yeah. like any other relationship, right? Yes, absolutely. And so how have you thought about, I know that you live your life and, and prepping for this. I read so many things that I didn't know about you that, oh, wow. Thank that you. I, well, that I was really excited about. And that I'm like, I want to be like, oh, I want to be more like that, but I know myself well enough to know, like just the intention you send around, set around, um, kind of, uh, the thing that I read that you're like set time around a half hour. These are the things that I'm going to get accomplished this day or waking up and meditating, just being kind of structured, I guess, about how your time, I'm not great about that. So let's put that aside for a second. I my point is that I think that you live with intention, um, which I think is admirable. So I'm guessing that when you started the company that you, I haven't met Carrie, but that you and Carrie, I'm guessing were very intentional around culture. Yep. Um, and there's lots of people who talk the talk, but what's most important to you as far as the experience your employees are having, which can be even more challenging during COVID when they're all kind of remote? And are you in an office? Like what's happening with Tomo and, and all of that? Yeah, like, the great office. The culture. Yeah. The great office debates. Yes. Um, I, I I largely don't participate in the public office debates. I'm happy to talk about it here because um, we want one answer often as people. It's a bunch of different answers, which is there are different things best suited for particular companies and cultures. And that doesn't mean it's right for one or wrong for the other. It's kind of funny. So we run a hybrid culture. We have throughout the entire history of the company. Um, we are in the office Monday through Wednesday, um, systems wide. We've got three offices, Seattle, um, Stanford and Austin, Texas, Stanford, Connecticut and Austin, Texas. We're in the office Monday through Wednesday and then Thursday and Friday, we are where we are most effective anywhere in the world. I, I leave it to my teammates to figure out where they want to be. Um, sometimes at the beach, but we work a full day on those days. Uh, maybe at a beach, maybe at a ski hill, maybe uh, in their apartment, don't care. It's that's that's up to the adults that I work with to figure it out. Um, that's largely how how the company's organized with some small with some, some teams have 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 some very specific needs and operate differently. That's worked for us. Uh, it's allowed us to get in front of a whiteboard um, and be a little less formal in times in structure. A young company needs to move fast, and if we're spending a lot a lot of time on coordination, planning, and structure, it can really weigh you down when you have a small team. So this was a way for us to act quite nimbly with maybe a little less infrastructure than we ought to have had or our peer companies would have because we try to we try to anchor functions in one of the offices so people can stand up and see each other and debate. Um, others have figured this out. I have a good friend, uh, Austin Allison, that runs a company called um, Picasso, which is a really cool um, housing startup. And they're completely virtual. They've always been virtual. It seems to really work well for them. Uh, it's just not our jam. Uh, yeah. And to, to each company our own, this one has worked well. Connection uh, is very, very important for us. 
Fearlessness is very, very important. We want a safe environment where people can take risks. We win as a young company by iterating faster than others can. Bank of America, I promise you, has well more resources in the mortgage category than we do. Uh, and if we're going to go head for head and operate like them, we're doomed. So what we have to do is be able to look at insights, product opportunities, identify those things. Uh, we call it um, scrape from the headlines. When there's an opportunistic need, we have to be able to get to them faster, get it to market uh, with quality, but with not many features, and then iterate like mad to get to the right answers faster than anyone can. Yeah. Um, and there we go. That, that, that suits us. We launched a lock. I'll give an example of that. We launched a, a product called Lock and Shop. It's kind of a unique product. The ability to go ahead, lock in your interest rate on a mortgage before finding a home oh. for 120 days. So you can, it's 400 bucks, nominal fee. Uh, so you can go and shop with confidence that in a rising interest rate environment, you'll still be able to afford the place you started shopping for. Right. So you have to close it within 120 days. Didn't exist in that form. Totally innovative. Uh that came together over a kind of, you know, four or five week period from seeing opportunity of rising interest rates to getting something in market. Right. That, that's the kind of stuff that we do here. That's this fearlessness. That's a lot right. And nobody's getting that done at Bank of America within four to five weeks. That's like- They can if they want. Five. I don't want to, no, you know. Nobody's not what I'm saying. Like that's the type yeah. of shit, shit you can't move yeah, quickly on. These it's hard companies. to do that at a big yeah. company. Yeah. So what's the big picture plan for the business? I mean, obviously- uh, growth and scaling and adding people and all of that. But like, where's, what direction are you going? And you said you're starting with mortgages. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, we, we, we want to make moving into a home a, a real time experience um, that gives control back to uh, home buyers and their agents, um, makes them feel safer, uh, reduces their expenses, and ultimately in the process broadens home ownership. Um, to a broader audience, to a broader group of people that that maybe haven't been able to participate um, both through education, you know, awareness of the financial process, and maybe because of the costs associated with it. That would be really swell if we do those things with the largest lender in America. And that's what the ambition is. That's incredible. Tell me about Goatella. <laughs> Goatella. Um, we is, were is missing you. Goat, like, like, yeah. AT. Yeah, goat is one of our corporate four corporate values. Yeah, what, are, what does uh, that stand for? Uh, greatest of all time, greatest of all teams. Well, that, yeah, that's like our, goat, that's like our, the goat. Yeah, my son's the yeah. goat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that's our people standard. We only, you know, we all want to work with world class folks. Yeah, and we hold our, ourselves accountable to developing and retaining world class folks. We run a very, very, very uh, thorough, uh, as you know, talent assessment process um, on folks we're going to bring in. So uh, that that's we call ourselves goats. Um, and Goatella is our first ever all company meeting. Um, we're all going down the street from Coachella to Palm Springs in a few weeks um, and to Coachella. And we're going to spend a bunch of us who joined during uh, COVID haven't met each other uh, in the two years, two and a half years the company's been live because we haven't done an all company meeting. We've done lots of department functions. So this is our first all hands uh, jam together. That's going to be amazing. Super fun. I love that. And I'm, oh, you're going to, you're the best CEO. I think I can just totally picture you just standing at the front, shaking hands, like greeting everybody. It's going to be a big party. I love that. Um, okay. I need to know, I, I did read and I started to mention it earlier in our conversation about like the structure. Can you just like give our listeners, because I feel like these are nuggets that people can take away. Hopefully one of our kids mm -hmm. is listening, or at least my kid. Um, about your organizational skills, like 
how you create so much structure for yourself and how, what effectiveness that has had on your productivity. Yeah. Hey, I, I, it's, it's a lifelong structure. It's a life, lifelong structure structure as anyone with ADHD uh, knows. Um, uh, there is, you know, one of the benefits we have is creativity typically. Um, uh, there's a lot of ideas flowing in my head and yours. There's lots of different things. If I'm not careful, I will find myself down a hallway in a conference room for an hour thinking about something totally different than what was scheduled and what I needed to get done that day. So I'm, I try to be, or I've learned to be really disciplined. Um, so I classically don't run my time via lists. I find lists uh, an anchor around my neck. Um, if something is important that I need to do it and I can't do it in the moment, I schedule it on my calendar in Google, in my Google calendar. Um, and so I've obviated the need for, um, as I call it, the, um, the heresy of lists, um, that so many people are burdened by you go home, you feel like you didn't accomplish half of what was on your list. Well, cause you didn't allocate the time to do it. So stop it. So one is I actually have structured time throughout the day for specific personal projects that I need to work on. That's mm -hmm. one, two, I start every morning. I never, ever, ever go into the day without reviewing the entire next five days schedule and effectively evaluating how, how I'm devoting my time and thinking about that against, you know, my priorities. And so uh, that, that is focusing every single day because I will meander off course um, with all the ideas in this, in this, in this busy head of mine. Um, and then, and then one other thing in my system, if I'm feeling disaggregated, if I'm feeling a little out of balance, if I'm getting a little hot under the collar, I catch it, clip it, and think why. And I'll stop whatever I'm doing, uh, wherever I am, and just take a walk. Uh, in Stanford here, we have a, we've got a boardwalk outside of our office around the water um, uh, uh, here on Long Island Sound. And there's a great walking thing. And if I'm feeling a little hot on a topic or with a team, I'll go take a walk and try to get uh, clarity on why. And then I'll come back in, write it down, um, and bang out a slack or call or, or call the team together. Um, and that it's not that much more than that. Um, understand what your priorities are very clearly. Mm -hmm. Don't live less, live time. Um, when what you see yourself, meditation? Yeah, you know, hey, I, I, I'd like to say I get better at that. Um, I go through periods where I need it. My, oh. my current thing is I swim. I'm swimming again oh. for the first time in 25 years. Your perfect weekend, not with your family, not with your friends. Like if you just got a day alone, how would you spend it? No, oh, and I can, I can make, wave a magic wand. Alone. Yes. yes. Okay. So there's one iconic thing that settles this, this head of mine. Um, I'm on the peak tapas part. I just got off the chairlift at Black Home. I know you've ski, so you've been there. I've got my uh, earbuds in, I'm listening to EDM. And I used to do this thing on bad snow days. I used to go from the top of Black Home, and you know, it's it's a big hill. It's 5,300, 5,500 um, vertical feet. And I'd go from the top of Black Home and try to ski the full mountain and um, the connector to Whistler Base. So it's about 50 minutes, 45, 50 minutes without stopping. Oh, and so it would go on the flow and I can only do this at late season uh, when I was in shape, but that is my happiest moment. Get, get a good EDM mix going, be at the top and do a full 45, 50 minutes of turns 
without without even stopping once in this continual flow and that that gets endorphins going for well, me that sounds absolutely incredible so yeah. my last um two questions um one is top i guess this would be a hard question for me so i get it if it's too hard top like five artists music can i share something embarrassing yeah Tell you know like what it became Britney this week Spears or something weird what uh i'm a swifty oh all right taylor well, that's okay. Yeah, my 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 17-year-old is a Swifty. And I was like, ah, and then I started listening to it and it started getting in my playlist. Her lyrics uh, are great. I've seen her in she's concert too. Such she's an pretty impressive good. business person. Yes. Um uh so, you know, I, I'm trapped as as uh, I think you are, I'm trapped in EDM. So EDM's fantastic. But uh, we, we've been following uh DJs a lot lately. Yeah, Cataranda. I'm obsessed with the song Twin Flame right now. Anything by Kygo, I adore. We just saw um, Kygo, yes. Lucky cheat codes. Um, what else is on this list? Fred again. Um, I don't know. Sam Felt. There's a lot of stuff in here. Is this your is this your playlist? Yeah, this is my this is what's playing right now. Yeah. Okay, you have to send me the playlist then. I will share it with you. Okay, you. my final question: What fuels you? What fuels me? Um, people. I want people to be really successful and really happy. And I want to be happy too. That's what fuels me. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com. To provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.